Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write about it, and more. With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobar, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names. From high-profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors, to out-of-the-way innovators and remote pioneers. Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. It is Whiskey Wednesday, October 21st, 2020, and you're listening to episode 20. Today, we speak with Joe Beatrice of Barrelcraft Spirits. But first, stay tuned for this week's Whiskey Chronicles. There's long been controversy over the sourcing of whiskey, so much so that some drinkers look askance at the practice. In some cases, whiskey companies that sell source whiskey without divulging the source often gain a well-deserved bad reputation for doing so. Tossing someone else's amber liquid into their own bottle and selling it as their own without so much as a word about its origin is, on its face, deceitful. Many whiskey brands that sell source whiskey, however, are quite upfront about it and even do their own aging and finishing before bottling it for sale. Additionally, because of federal government rules and regulations, it's nearly impossible to be able to sell 100% of your own product for the first few years of operations. Since bourbon, for example, in order to be sold as straight bourbon, must be aged in charred oak containers for at least two years, sourcing whiskey while waiting for one's own juice to mature is sometimes unavoidable. Looking at the history of whiskey in America, we learned that it wasn't until the mid-19th century that whiskey achieved industry status. Back then, the coffee still, C-O-F-F-E-Y, named after its inventor, Irishman Aeneas Coffee, made it easier to produce spirits in large volumes, that the railroads then could quickly transport in barrels to distant markets, thus rendering as sourced virtually all whiskey. Since distilleries were located near grain and water sources, all they needed to do was distill and age their product. Then they could sell their barrels off to distributors who created and marketed brands to a rapidly expanding nation's increasingly affluent consumers. Advances in technology rendered bottle making more efficient and inexpensive after 1905, and this fostered the trend towards vertical integration. After the repeal of Prohibition, the trend continued. The sourcing of whiskey, however, never ceased. As touched on earlier, there are two ways of securing sourced whiskey. The first is to buy ready-to-drink, already-aged, finished whiskey. The other is to purchase new distillate and then pay someone to age it for you and or age it and finish it yourself. Whiskey sales sagged in the 1970s. The downturn produced excess distilling capacity and sourced whiskey sales suffered. Through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, Seagram was a vast and widely known wine and spirits company. I don't know about Philip, but I myself enjoyed Seagram's wine coolers in my early 20s and was very sad to see them sold for parts soon after I started drinking back in 1999. Pernod Ricard obtained Seagram's Lawrenceburg, Indiana distillery, now Midwest Grain Products. But because sales of Seagram's blends were falling, Pernod Ricard found itself with more whiskey in its aging warehouse than it could use. And so, round about 2005, the French spirits conglomerate quietly started selling it off in bulk. It was then that some whiskey makers went to great and illegal lengths to hide the fact that their whiskey was 100% sourced. In 2011, Midwest Grain Products, better known as MGP, bought the old Seagram's distillery, just in time as it happens, for the dawn of the whiskey boom. As more and more whiskey-minded entrepreneurs opened distilleries, MGP's contract distilling boomed and their margins, accordingly, greatly improved. Although many think that MGP is the only outfit that sold contract-sourced whiskey, That was not the case. Several major distilleries, particularly when forecast predicted a surplus in a particular age range, have long sold their output to other brands as more or less standing practice. As the bourbon boom continued, however, the major distilleries, sensing a golden opportunity, stopped taking new contracts and started keeping more of the stock for themselves, thus leaving MGP the only game in town for new source contracts. Today, bulk whiskey suppliers have dramatically greater contract distilling capacity, MGP and newer producers, such as Bardstown Bourbon Company, in addition to contract distilling, historically their core business, are investing in building up their bulk whiskey stocks. And for the record, it's the position of this show that sourcing whiskey, when done with honesty and integrity, is in no way taboo. Simply put, when marketing sourced whiskey as one's own, transparency is key. We'll learn more about sourced whiskey with today's guest, Joe Beatrice, founder of Barrel Craft Spirits. Joe sources and blends exceptional casks from established producers, bottles whiskey at cast strength, and sells them as transparently as possible. His story is up next. Stay with us. 
Center for Culinary Culture, home to the Cocktail Collection and L.A. Food and Drink Museum, has a YouTube channel that offers a diverse and growing slate of food and drink series, featuring a mix of how-to, lively talk, and culinary entertainment. Already streaming are Culinary Quickies, Le Cocktail Du Jour, V is for Vino, and this podcast, Spirits of Whiskey. Upcoming shows include Cocktails, The Grand Tour, a new series starring Jonathan Pogash, a.k.a. the Cocktail Guru, the award-winning Music and Booze with Mo, featuring Mo Herms and his series of musically spirited cocktailians, and an all-new wine podcast, hosted by Silver Pin Certified Sommelier Stacy Hunt. We're streaming culinary culture, so please visit YouTube, search for the Center for Culinary Culture, and subscribe now. The Center for Culinary Culture, Telling the story of food and drink, one taste at a time. Today on Spirits of Whiskey, we have with us direct from Louisville, Kentucky, Mr. Joe Beatrice, founder of Barrel Craft Spirits. Welcome, Joe. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming. It's good to have you. <laughs> so, Joe, we wanted to thank you for being on the show today, and we're excited to talk to you about your whiskey journey. So tell us, when you were a kid... What did you think you were going to do for your future? What did you aspire to be? And then how did you end up where you are today? Yeah, and include where you grew up, always of interest. Wow, that's a really simple question. <laughs> I grew up- we specialize in that, not. <laughs> I grew up in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. Okay. And then after college, I moved to New York and spent most of my adult life there. And I had no idea that I was going to be here. I've lived a couple of different lives. In college, I was a geology major. Then I went into marketing. And in New York, I and this is probably a good place to start because maybe going to high school in Cambridge, Massachusetts is probably not something too many people want to hear about. But <laughs> Could be. Who knows? It was certainly an interesting time and place to be. It depends on whether or not you burned witches. It, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite that old, but yeah. <laughs> say that's, uh, that's pretty old. So I guess New York and my world in advertising was probably a good starting point. I came to Louisville, Kentucky in the late 80s. Uh, we had a client down here with Glenmore Distilleries, and I fell in love with Kentucky one of the first time I ever came here. It was one of those summer evenings that was just a million shades of green and it was just beautiful and uh, enjoyed it and spent you know a fair amount of time here. The ad agency that I had started was really morphed into an internet company, uh, Blue Dingo. And so I got into the internet fairly early in New York in the Silicon Alley movement and where we created and uh, shaped sort of the digital world. Everything from web application, websites, online advertising, marketing, building integration of technology and social media platforms. We did several hundred engagements. And along the way, I always had a spirits vertical. So we worked with Hubeline, UDV, Diageo for different products, worked with Cuervo for a long time. And and so it's always been part of my professional bag of tricks. And along the way, I made beer my whole life for myself. I didn't do anything commercially. You were a home brewer. Home brewer, yeah. What kind of beers were your favorite to make? I made IPAs. Okay. I made stout. I liked porters, especially. I spent a lot of time making porters and then variants of those. What got me into it was we did a little bit of work for Boston Beer. I met Jim Cook early, early on and really fascinating to meet him and go to their brewery. And I was really intrigued by it, by the process. So it was really fun. And he was like, here's how you make it. Here's some hops. <laughs> you'll never be able to replicate this product, but go to town. And it was really an interesting moment. It didn't give me any yeast, so it would be impossible to create that particular product. So I spent years and years and years making beer for myself and crazy and meticulous and exacting. And what was really interesting was it's very difficult to make this. Well, I think it's impossible to make the same thing because there's so many little things that can impact the outcome. It's almost impossible to make the same thing over and over again. Right. But I tried. It was sort of an interesting insight that was foreshadowing what we do now. There's a big difference between doing something in an artisanal way or in a craft way versus doing something in a larger scale craft way where the objective is to make the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. Right. So on and on and on in time, you know, time went, time passes. I had a great career doing that. And the truth is there was a moment where I just... Couldn't write any more PowerPoint presentations. Um, <laughs> you were decked out. 
I was decked out. I was, <laughs> I was done with using counterproductive tools called email and PowerPoint and making meetings and going to meetings. And my wife and I were actually at a distillery. And I just had this moment where this is what I think we should be doing. And so then I transitioned from all the things that I knew about building brands, like creating products, differentiating products, understanding market, and building a brand, and and set out to build Barrelcraft Spirits. And it was about a one-year process from the day that I had that inspiration to when we bottled our first case. So you went from doing it for others to doing it for yourself. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Yep. And I've loved every minute of it. It's just, I can't tell you how great it is, how liberating it is. It's not without its challenges and um, and uh, near homicides of people. But, you know, it's all in all, it's a pretty amazing experience. And uh, you know, I'm really lucky. I'm really fortunate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you started Barrelcraft Spirits, you sourced and blended selected casks from established producers. Then you bottled those whiskeys at cask strength and sold them to quote your website, as transparently as possible. Now, this independent bottling, it's a well-established practice in Scotland, but at the time, it was new to the U.S. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was new to the U.S., and also it was the disclosure part of it, that that's what we're doing was new, Mm -hmm. but it's actually been going on since... Oh, indeed, indeed. I should qualify that. Yes, it really wasn't transparent before then. Yeah, and what was really important to me was transparency and also... My focus was on the product. It was what's in the bottle, and that's why there's so much of the bottle is labeled or covered up. It was for you to have a complete experience, tactile experience, and sensory experience with our product. I just sort of laughed at fake backstories and <laughs> you know, made up family recipes which aren't true, or you know, or borrowed interest from. Only the beans dog knows the recipe. What's his name? The dog for the beans commercial. You guys know what I'm talking about? <laughs> oh yes, I forget the name of the brand, but uh, yes, they're Boston baked beans or something like that. Yeah, yes. there we go. Yeah, yeah. It, it might be Bush. Only beans the dog. Are, yes, it's Bush. Yes, Bush. That's it. yes, yes. Shout out to mm. Bush. Hey, we'll take your advertising dollars. <laughs> I don't think that's really true, but you know, what do I know? Um, so that was really, <laughs> that was really important to me. And so producing the three sort of core things that we built things on is that. Everything is released at cast strength. And, you know, and that means that it ranges from, and this is sort of interesting, from there are casts that we get that are 85, 90 proof, but the majority of them are over 100 and 110 to 120, all the way up to 142 or so in some of the Canadian whiskeys. And so we do everything at cast strength. We create everything in a limited release and everything is unique. Mm-hmm. So we set out to produce a product that's a new one every time we do a product. We do everything on whiteboard in our lab and we just begin with an idea, a premise of what we want to do. And then we come up with the concept in the lab and then execute it in the world. But every single thing that we do is different and unique. Now this cask strength rule, it also is something that sets you apart because even in Scotland where independent bottling is a grand tradition and very transparent, releasing things at cask strength under that independent bottling umbrella is not a selling point, as it were. It's not a standard practice. Right. No, there are, but, and there are more and more. You'll see that. And we were in the market, there were only a couple of brands that were doing that. Now everybody's got a cast strength. And, you know, the thing about cast strength is it's like low carb. There is no legal definition for it. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you the only water we have in our place is the water that we use to replace the sweat. <laughs> we have drinking water. And so we don't use water for in the process at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And so but that's just been you know, part of what we want to do. Yeah. And also the whiskeys you choose, they're unreplicable by design. That is correct. Once a release is gone, it is gone. It's not going to be replicated. Yeah. And part of that has been my orientation to things, which is I'm an adventurer. I like to find things. I like to learn things. I like to try new things. And people don't go, what's old? They go, what's new? And what I would like people to ask is, what's new for Barrelcraft Spirits? So, you know, it's a risky because we're as good as the products we put out there and we've established trust. We have a really loyal consumer base and there's a lot of debate on what they like better. But for the most part, you're not going to be disappointed because it doesn't get in the bottle unless it passes a pretty rigorous standard that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, you might like one more than another, but they are going to be a different experience and they are very differentiated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, and that's still to this day, you don't, do you actually not distill any of your own still? No. And in fact, we were 
full speed ahead to build the distillery here. Really? Yeah. And we had even begun some of the process. And we had this moment where we were spending all of our time blending. And so after finally assembling the correct expertise, I mean, you've probably seen our website, Trip Simpson. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Trip and I have been working together since batch two, and we started blending together. And I knew that I couldn't do it because I didn't have the expertise. And I'm smart enough to know that you have to find the, the right expertise to do the things you can't do. And it just evolved to the point where we were just having such success with our blending, and we knew that that was really the value added that we were bringing to the product, that we just decided to not do that. You know, we have some test stills and we do some experimental stuff and we do some component distillation, but it's nothing of any of a scale that is Mm -hmm. scalable or rock because we don't need to. The world is our pantry. Yeah, indeed. So you're a whiskey curator. Yes and no. I think of curation as you select something and then you present that. Mm -hmm. We're changing the actual products. Mm-hmm. We spend a lot of times, in most of our, for example, our batch blends, they're almost all now multi-state, multi-mash bill, and multi-year. Mm-hmm. And if you look at a bottle that's a five-year-old bourbon, it says five-year-old on the bottle, but if you go deeper, there is five-year-old, there's nine-year-old, there's 16-year-old. And we have no problem with using older bourbons and whiskeys for the whiskey products to enhance and elevate the flavor, make it something greater, because that's the experience people want. So by nature, there's no big magic or anything that says 18-year-old bourbon is going to taste really good. In fact, it may not taste good. It may be too old. Too woody. Yeah, too woody. But that component in a younger bourbon will really elevate certain aspects of it, certain characteristics. And that's what we spend a lot of time doing is blending hundreds of different combinations of barrels that we have. So that's a little bit different than curation. Indeed. But maybe it's the same depth. Well, it's curation and then a lot more. You're curating what you think are the best and then you're cultivating them further. Yeah, that works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I really like the idea. Very good. Now, expressions, releases. You spent some time on the website. I've seen the whiskey. I've seen the brand at trade and consumer shows. And I mean, there's a lot going on. I'm looking at your website right now. And first of all, it's a beautiful website. And then I just plugged in my zip code and there's 19 locations near me where I can get this. So that makes me happy. Well, that's (laughs) (laughs) good. And not only are you doing bourbon, uh, rye, you're doing a range of quote-unquote whiskeys. In other words, those that are neither bourbon nor rye, according to classification. You're also importing and then maturing in Kentucky rums. Yep, that's a smaller part of what we do, but that is all correct. And the other product we have is sort of ongoing products, which are the Dovetail and the Infinite Barrel Project. Mm -hmm. Those rounded out. Can you talk to us about those? Sure. Yes, let's talk about the Dovetail. I mean, Infinite Barrel is so intriguing. Just the name alone is like, tell me more. That too. And then the Dovetail, I like that it's finished in rum port and port and done vineyard Cabernet barrels. That sounds yummy. Yeah, we've won a number of awards with that recently. It was the Chairman's Trophy at Ultimate Spirits and New York Tasting Challenge. We just, people love that product. Actually, let me tell you about Infinite and then I'll, and then maybe I'll just jump up to the product line and, and help sort of with a roadmap here. Okay. The Infinite Barrel Project is something we started more than two years ago at this point, And it was almost an homage to the Infinity Bottle idea. Mm-hmm. But rather than having it just be this random collection of odds and ends, we set out to do something a little bit more deliberate, which was we started with, I don't even remember, maybe 100 barrels of whiskeys and bourbons from around the world and the United States and came up with a blend that we really liked. I mean, it includes some Polish rye. I know there was some scotch, there was some Irish whiskey, there's multiple kinds of bourbons in there. And then once that, that was mingled and married and was there for, was ready, we extracted a portion of it to bottle. And then we immediately replaced the amount that we took out the bottle with more whiskey. So we started with about 100 barrels, and we've done 12 or 13 releases of this or different bottlings of it. So if you were to line up the product all together, you would be able to taste the lineage, but each one is unique and different. And it's been a really fun project because we get to drive it a little bit. Right now, we're in our, the most recent one is a little bit more scotch forward than it was a year ago. And we'll probably, in the next couple months, even sort of tweak that a little bit and bring it into a slightly different direction. So the only way you can tell what's in it is you check the date and go to our website, and it lists the barrels that we have added at that point. And that's a really fun project. It's ongoing. People seem to like it. So we're going to keep going. Mm -hmm. In a manner of speaking, it's always changing almost in real time. 
It is. It is. That's fascinating. It's very evolving and evolutionary. Yeah. Wait a minute. It says Infinite Barrel Project Halloween. Does that mean you have a special coming out for Halloween? No, it was actually bottled on, that was the one, wow, that was 2018. Wow. I'm just looking at that as well. Yeah, we bottled (laughs) it on Halloween. (laughs) Okay. And if you look really closely at that and you look at the zero in 2018, you'll see this little skull in there. Ah, scary. Oh, how funny. That's cute. We try to put Easter eggs and things periodically where people can find them. Got it. The hidden Mickey, so to speak. Yeah, that's it. You have them all over the place. So you want to talk about Dovetail, a private release, whiskeys, bourbons, rides, whiskeys? What do you want to hear about? Yes. Let's talk about Dovetail real quick. Okay. Actually, wait, let's back up a little bit because I was also reading in your bio that you pounded the payment when you were first starting this. And that sounds very similar to Allison Park, who we had from Bren Whiskey, who when she first started her whiskey company, she literally took her stuff door to door. So I wanted to see how similar the process was with you. It's funny as you mentioned it. Allison is, ter- she's terrific. And Allison is one of the first people I met in the business because she started about a year before I did. Okay. I met her at an event, I think somewhere, one of the whiskey festivals. And we started talking and she was really generous at the time. And, you know, when you're starting out in this, it's, it looks so simple on the surface and, you know, but it's not, <laughs> but it is, you know, the, 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 the bar at entry is, is low. And all you got to do is put in the bottle and uh, get a distributor and the rest, then just sit back while the checks come in. I mean, oh, sure. Right, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. right. That's how it works. Not yeah. quite like that. So <laughs> <laughs> it is true. And Allison, you know, we found out we, our paths cross a lot in, those, in the first couple of years, but that's exactly right. When I will never forget, it was the first week in January in 2013, I guess it was. And we had just finished a bottling and I got back from Kentucky. We bottled it in December. It was in the warehouse and I took samples with me and I got in the car and it was in the middle of a snowstorm. And I went to the first five accounts I could think of that were the hardest ones in the world because, because for me, there were two things. I wanted it validated by other people. We never make claims about our product. We never tell you that it's great or that it's good. Mm-hmm. We rely on other people's endorsement because right. that's the way the world works. I mean, if I tell you it's the greatest tasting, it's like based on what? Right. But if somebody else, somebody you know says that, you're more likely to want to try it. So we early on used influencers and social media and bloggers at the time and did lots of tasting events. So we put the product in people's mouth. And so I went to the first five and I wanted to go to the hardest ones. And the first place I went to was Park Ave Liquors in New York in Manhattan. And I remember I got a meeting with Jonathan Goldstein, who they're true whiskey experts and you know, really way out in front of the retail world at that time. And he tasted it and he goes, this is really incredible. I'll take five cases. And I thought, wow, this can't be that hard. <laughs> and then it went on. Uh, so uh, that was that's how it started. That's actually where I met Will Shragas, who is our national director. Mm-hmm. Will was running the spirits program at Zaki's. It's a well-known retail store in Scarsdale, New York. And he was just started their spirits program. And he got the concept. He loved it. He bought it. And we stayed in touch. And uh, first few months, we just talked. And then I eventually made him a job offer and said, it's an open offer. When you're ready to join the company, you just call me. And it's here. And about a year later, he said, I'm ready. He came in. And he's been killing it ever since. And he's an integral part of our team. Nice. I looked it up this morning. Will Shragas introduced me to Barrel Craft back in 2016 here in Los Angeles at Whiskey Live. I remember that Whiskey Live. I wasn't there. Ah, okay. (laughs) But I remember it was supposed to be there. Ah, okay. Yeah, Yeah, I remember remember Will covered that. Will covered that one. So there we go. That's terrific. There we go. Yeah. Cool. It's a small world. Yeah. And so this is a bourbon that this one was an incredibly straightforward bourbon to blend for us for some reason. And let me just talk a second about our process before we get into it. We identify something that we want to do. And in this case, we wanted to focus on the 10-year-old barrels because we liked the way that they had matured. I liked the way that they were going. And we wanted to just really highlight everything about that barrel, which is incredibly lush and complex. And so we break the barrels down by type but we take component samples from different barrels and then begin doing different blends of those barrels within the type. And then after we've gotten to a place where we like the barrel blend by barrel type within the barrel type, then we start layering in the other barrels. And this could be anywhere from 50 to 100 different combinations. And we're meticulous about tracking it. And then we get to the point that we say, this is it. This has all those characteristics. So Tripp and I do the blending and Nick Christensen 
I joined our team about a year ago uh, and is running our single barrel program and has been instrumental and a big part of the Bunny team. And when Will's in Kentucky, Will participates as well and we'll get together. And one of the things that sort of is interesting is Tripp and I have been doing this for a very long time and we each know what the other one really likes. And we also both have these particular sensitivities to faults, to different faults. So there are some things that just scream at Trip and some things that scream at me. And so what's really worked is either one of those conditions are met, it's not there or it's eliminated in some way. So that's part of our process. And then once we establish it in the lab, we grab those barrels and we go into our big, we have these big 6,000 gallon sort of proprietary Vendome blending tanks that we use that have very different attributes built into them for us to do different techniques in blending. And we inch our way up to blending to that blend. And you know what's true with everything is there's always curveballs. And so we know from experience to take our time and step our way up to it. So we take our time and blend and we do 20% of the total barrels and 30, 40, 50, 60. And we keep tasting along the way. And then when we get somewhere close to the target size that we want, when it's there, we stop. And so if we wanted 3,000 cases and we're at 2,500 and it's perfect at 2,500, we don't do any more. So that's sort of the, the process that goes on behind the scenes. So this one, this particular one, this is really forward with cinnamon and donut-y flavors and just it's chewy and lush and rich and <laughs> licorice-y flavors. And the, but there's also this sort of balancing out is not just chocolate, but almost a raisiny currant flavor. So I don't know if you're getting that. Are you tasting? Are you tasting now? I did get the licorice. That was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. That's a really interesting attribute of this one. Mm-hmm. We also tend to like creamy bourbons, so we use cereal milk a bit. We talk about that flavor a little bit. I love cereal milk, even though it's so little cereal. But boy, I love cereal milk. <laughs> <laughs> and we're talking about Cheerios, not more Cheerios and less Count Chocula. <laughs> <laughs> Mm, yeah, Cheerios and okay, all right. Maybe Captain Crunch is probably the highest good of cereal milk. Nice. <laughs> That's about as good as it gets. So there's this lush sweetness to it, but there's also there's a bit of the yeah. savory components to it that, that balance it out. So this is you know balance is really important to us. So you're tasting some, I think, a nicely balanced whiskey here. Yeah, and it's just short of 108 proof. Mm-hmm. I am very much getting that cereal milk, now that you mention it. Mm-hmm. I'm very much getting that on the tongue. Yeah, I know to that point, when I do tastings, I tend to not talk about the flavors that I see in it mm-hmm. because it's very suggestive. I, I really like to bring it out. So, you know, in the next one, I can ask you guys what you're getting. Part of the tasting is your smell and taste are connected to memory. Right. And a lot of times it's difficult to connect what that is you're tasting, but sometimes you actually get there through a memory. So I would say when you're trying that, let that happen. I was thinking back to, um, I was in New Orleans a couple years ago at the New Orleans Bourbon Festival, and there was somebody who was stopped and was tasting our product, and I look at him, and he's just standing there with this blank expression on his face, and I'm like, is this guy having a stroke or something? I I couldn't figure out (laughs) what was going on. In an uncomfortable length of time, he comes back and says, I was just transported to my boyhood farm in the barn milking cows in the morning. Wow. (laughs) Nice. And I was like, you're welcome. Great. So (laughs) so I would say let your imagination go crazy and you might be surprised at some of the things that connect to it. Uh Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Okay. So uh, dovetail? Dovetail. Or did we go to the rye? Or have we not tasted? I've tasted. (laughs) Oh, I didn't taste the rye. Oh, no, no. I'm talking about the bourbon. Oh, yeah. No, I tasted the bourbon. Okay. Uh, okay. So which do you want to do next, the rye or the dovetail? I would suggest dovetail only because rye is going to color the flavor because the rye is a little bit more grain forward. Okay. Let's do the dovetail. Okay. Dovetail. Where do I begin with dovetail? The story of this product to me is one of the more interesting experiences we've ever had. So if you want to hear this, I don't know how we do it on time, but I can do a quick digression on sort of how this came to be and the challenges with this thing on the labeling. For sure. Okay. So Dovetail was going to be our next in our whiskey series originally. And so we submitted the COLA, which is the label to go to the TTB for approval. And we're of the mind that we try to disclose as much as we can on the label. And the mission of the TTB label group is to have accurate and honest portrayal of what's in the bottle and what's happening there. Right. And their constraint or their standard is they use are the classification guidelines they have. 
which are at sometimes at odds with products and sometimes not encompassing enough. And, you know, like in the example that would be, there's no single malt category in the United States or whiskey. There's no single malt classification. Mm-hmm. So we submitted it as a whiskey. And then this was a six month process after we had blended this thing. And then I'll tell you about the blending. And where it ended up is they insisted that this is not a whiskey. What? Even though it was made up of two different whiskeys, a 10-year-old, a 11 and a 9-year-old whiskey with finishes, but it was a DSS, a distilled spirit specialty, which is the catch-all for anything that isn't one of the other classifications. Mm-hmm. So in order to do that, you have to put a submit, get a formula approval with the TTB. So the formula was we took these barrels, we put them, we put the whiskey in the barrels that came from the winery, and when it was done, we dumped them out, put them together, put them in a bottle. That's the formula. It was a big secret. Wow. Got approved. And so then one of the things that comes along with the DSS is you can't use the word whiskey by itself because it's not a whiskey. That's misleading. So it is whiskey finished in Dunn Vineyards Cabernet Barrel Rum and, and LBV casks. So anytime you see the word whiskey, it has to be connected to that sentence. So the reason I'm telling you all this is now things have changed again. Yeah. It seems to be changing all the time these days. It's changing all the time. And private release whiskeys do not seem to be DSSs anymore, but I'm not really sure yet. So in any event, it's been, it was a late, it was a journey on the labeling and we got to the point where we loved the name because we thought that the flavors just dovetailed so nicely together. They just integrated beautifully. I was going to ask about that if it was. Yeah, that, that's where the name came from. And so the story, the other backstory on it is Will was in Napa and he had stopped in to Dunn. And if you know Dunn Vineyards, in my humble wine opinion, I think they probably make the greatest cab that I've ever tasted. To me, when I buy a bottle of it, it's expensive. I buy a bottle of it and it deserves the best possible steak you can make. Mm. And that's how that product should be enjoyed. And so when they wanted to, and, I, and it was an amazing meeting, they would, they would just all in and they send us every year, we get fresh down barrels from them, these beautiful French oak barrels. And it's just the perfect, perfect wine for the finish on this whiskey. So we have some of it is in in the Dunn barrels. By the way, those are toasted French oak barrels, mm. um, the, the Dunn vineyard barrel. There's LBV port pipes and black strap molasses casks. So we tweak it every time we do a bottling, we tweak it just a little bit. That's why you'll see the different proofs in there. So there are minor variations, but but it really it's different from infinite. It really reads as the same product and the different bottlings. Yeah. Anyway, so let's do what I said. Why don't you guys tell me what you taste there and I'll play it. Well, I love it. Actually, when I first tasted this, I think I did taste the French oak. Well, get me if I'm wrong, but I think Bren whiskey is also in French oak, right? That is correct. Yep. In Libazan. Mm-hmm. And not that they taste anything alike, but there was something like that whole sensory thing you were just talking about that this flavor made me think of that whiskey even though it's a completely different profile with the cognac, but there was something in it, which I believe would be the French oak that I pulled out mm-hmm. that just brought me to, it's a more fruity and more light. I like it. Yeah, it is fruitier than the bourbon. I might mention here the heat on this, it is, or lack thereof. I mean, the proof is just north of 124, but on the palate, I don't find that it burns any hotter than the bourbon. Yeah, what you're experiencing is part of that is in the blending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We really take pride in blending high proof products so they don't taste like, so they don't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Thank, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you know, it might be a pleasant experience. I mean, this whiskey to me is, I find myself drinking this whiskey a lot. I would find myself drinking this a lot too if I had it <laughs> ready all the time. <laughs> yeah, this is a winner. This is, this is a winner. It is. It's really good. Thank you. In fact, we talked to Chef Louise later in the show, and this is the expression she chose to make a dish with. Oh. So you guys should stay tuned to hear what that's about because uh, it's pretty interesting. I can't wait to try it myself. Terrific. That sounds really great. Yeah, so there's this a lot happening with this. I mean, everything from those the chocolate, molasses, marshmallow, that's there. There's definitely the pepper notes. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, the hazelnut honey thing is going on there. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, and just as a side note, when we do tasting notes, we do these really elaborate grids of things where we really force and that's from our sales team the people who work here you know we really drill down into separating the tasting experience from beginning middle end to finish to what attributes are you getting what notes and then really push people on you know if it's an apple is there a kind of apple that you you can differentiate if it's a yeah right so many different types of apples you can have a sour one or you can have a sweet one or you can have a yeah 
Yeah, it's exactly right. You know, like with a lot of Canadian ryes, the green apple note is really apparent on mm-hmm. it. And so that's not a red delicious apple note. It's it's really green apple. Correct. Anyway, anyway, this is a it's a keeper. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> and how does this do in sales comparatively? Is it like one of the top sales? The way our product line works is the bourbons occupy more than half of our total sales, mm-hmm. probably 75%. Wow. And then the whiskeys, rice rums, rums are a relatively small amount. It's, our rums are just appeal to a very narrow segment of people who are really experienced high ups or crazy rums that are just almost too much to drink because they're so amazing. Anyway, and Dovetail fits within the whiskey one, and it's actually a growing part of our portfolio. You know, it's within that 25% of the whiskeys. Yeah, it's really we're going to continue with it. We just, it's gotten a lot of recognition this year. So, you know, we are a very nimble company. So if this is what people like, we'll continue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, this is why the private release whiskeys, we do 48 different finishes at a time, 40 different barrel finishes. That's a lot of barrels. And then and we're able to do that. It's complex and it's time consuming, but people love them. So we're going to continue mm-hmm. to do those. Yeah, that's beautiful. On its face, that is a beautiful project. Yep. The whiskey went, the private release, yeah. Yeah, that is a beautiful project. Yeah, thank you. So we do that. We started actually with the rums, and we started playing around with, we tend to like Guiana, Jamaica, mm-hmm. Barbados, and a little bit of Martinique thrown in. Mm-hmm. And so we tend to do different combinations of those. So the private release rum side, we started doing different blend percentages of the different rum from the different islands, and then started doing a matrix of finishes that worked with those. Mm-hmm. So it's an extremely complex grid. People have really enjoyed those, and so that's been a lot of fun. Same with the rums for a second. Our, we had a release of rum called Tale of Two Islands. I saw that. <laughs> the story behind that is after we did our first rum release, we decided to save a portion of it and, and put it back into new fresh dump bourbon barrels. And because we liked it so much, we were trying to figure out what to do with it, and we started playing around with different, what would be an amazing finish for this? And we did 20 to 30 different trials. And hands down, the one that I wouldn't have picked, but I couldn't believe how good it was, was Isla Cask. And so the Tale of Two Islands is Jamaica and Scotland. Oh, that's a good combination. Yeah, that was a great project. And I just came across a bottle of that the other day. So so there's a touch of peat. Yep. Okay. It's just really nice. Anyway, Mm -hmm. so we got that going. To the rye. So it kind of sounds like you guys are so incredibly busy with all of this really fascinating blending and finishing that even if you wanted to do your own distilling, like when would you have time? Because this is so complex, everything you're doing. <laughs> it is. It is. I mean, that's exactly what factored into it. It was, there were only so many hours in a day and we're, you know, and we're enjoying this so much that we just figured, and there's so much great whiskey available to us right. that we didn't really feel like we needed to build a factory, which is the truth of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we're going to continue doing it the way we're doing it. Mm, awesome. We have another project that's coming out, which is our private release bourbon, which we just started. It'll be out in the fall, I think. And what we're doing there is we didn't finish the bourbon. It's not finishing anything. But what we're doing is we're playing around with different percentages of bourbons from different ages and being very specific and disclosing what is in it. So that's going to be a series that'll be out in the fall. And we have one more new product coming out called Armida, which is a very limited release experiment, which was a bourbon. What's Armida mean? The name, it was my mother's name. Oh, nice. Uh-huh. And it was the best idea that we come up with for this. It was, she was a great cook. And this concept is a bourbon that's finished in a pear brandy, pear eau de vie from Washington State, mm. and Cecilia Amaro cask. And there are also some finished in rum cask. We're going to see how this goes, and this may be a product that we do more of, like Dovetail, if people like it. So that's something else we're working on right now that'll be out there. Wow. That's coming up. Okay. I need to taste that. I love brandy, period. Yeah. I'm particularly fond of pear brandy. So, yeah. Yeah, this was brandy. We 160, I think 160 proof, 150 proof mm. brandy. We sort and we took it uncut right from the, their choice cut. We just bought all the production we could get. Nice. So, all right. Uh, we're really excited about that one. So, rye. Let's go with rye. the rye. Here we go. I'm going to pour it. So, this is just south of 117 proof. Yes. So, our orientation to the rye blends are when you say American rye, in my opinion, the gold standard is MGP, 95% rye. Mm-hmm. When you say rye, 
that's the product. They've been doing it for a million years. They know what they're doing and they produce an incredible product. A million actually or how many really? <laughs> <laughs> At least a hundred, I think. Yeah. But I could be wrong. I mean, it was Seagram's before. I mean, it was, it's got a rich history, but it's been around for a while. Mm-hmm. I think Columbus may have stumbled on the distillery when he came to America, but I could be wrong about that. <laughs> anyway. Mm, no, it was the Fountain of Youth. <laughs> he may have been the first to bring it back. Ponce de Leon found it, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, Ponce yeah. de Leon found it. Yeah, the Fountain of Youth. That's what he was seeking. There's nothing wrong with doing that, but repackaging or taking that rye and, and using In fact, we sell a number of single barrels that are 95% rye, single barrels. But in our rye batches, we're always trying to do something a little bit different. So our rye batches are blends of straight ryes that, that we try to accomplish something a little bit different. And with this particular bottling, it's a combination. There are four-year-old Indiana rye barrels in there. There's Tennessee rye that somebody had asked this question just so we can cross that off. It was not MGP rye that was aged in Tennessee. It was rye that was distilled and aged in Tennessee. Nice. Uh, we have some Polish rye in here um, and a little bit of the 14-year-old Canadian rye barrels. So this is a blend of a very diverse cross-section of bourbons. And you'll be able to pull out but of bourbons or of rice? Of rice, a very okay. diverse cross-section of rice. And so you'll be able to, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, wow, those bourbons turned into rye. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so is there something that jumps out at you? in the? Yes, yes. Yeah, I love the nose on this. Uh-huh. The nose to me doesn't taste anything like the actual dram, which is very cool. But when I smell it, I really just want to go have a piece of rye toast with some butter on it. Yes, you nailed that. Toast. <laughs> toast with rye seeds on the outside, crunchy, yep. with some really nice Irish butter. Mm-hmm. Some Kerrygold. I was going to say. Kerrygold. Kerrygold. <laughs> yeah, you had me at butter. Yep. Yeah, Kerrygold. Yep. <laughs> you had me at Kerrygold because it's spelled right. <laughs> ah, mm-hmm. indeed, indeed. Yeah. So, Philip, what were you going to say? Because uh, I'm sure Yes, you have- so I was going to say, uh, shall we talk cocktails? Mm. Well, I thought you had a... You didn't have a tasting note for that? Oh, I love the rye. It lives very happily on my tongue and at the back of my throat. I don't know what else to say. This proof, this blend, you have hit the sweet spot. Yep. Agreed. Thank you. Yeah. You know, for me, the first thing to me that jumps on this was the Indian pudding side of it. Ooh. To me, this brings me back to my childhood, eating at Durgan Park in Boston. It, It was like, that pudding for dessert with ice cream, hot pudding with ice cream was just, to me, the greatest thing. And this really brought me back to that time. Nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you put ice cream over hot pudding and it's like a lava, the pudding bubbles up through the ice cream. <laughs> that is just a, it's a glorious sight. You know, for me, a complex Amaro with vanilla ice cream is one mm. of the best combinations that you can have, I think for me okay wait we're gonna pause we'll talk about that yep. with cocktails because we're not gonna because <laughs> that's good yeah yeah and by the way right, carrie what so. i was gonna say is i cheat every afternoon at about four thirty. really with what the, whatever dessert is on hand so we end every interview with cocktail talk what's your favorite category what are your go-to's if you like to see barrelcraft cocktailed how do you like to see it or taste it experience it also, when you're out at a restaurant, a bar, and Barrelcraft is not on the menu, what do you order? All good questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, let me see if I can remember those. So first, I'm a little conflicted because I love our whiskeys on their own. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, they make incredible cocktails. I could imagine. Because from a commercial perspective, it's hard for bars to use our product unless they're charging a lot for the cocktails because of the mm-hmm. price point. Mm-hmm. The other side of it is they tend to be to make really well balanced and intense cocktails because of the flavors that stand up. To that point, these really will cut through modifiers. They do. And so I'll tell you one of the things that you might find this shocking, but <laughs> we were at the beach recently and um, for a working vacation and I discovered White Claw. And I'll tell you, I'm a convert. it's such a great summer drink so i even though it's not a cocktail i like it and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. company but boy it's a good product but you know the summers i like i've been doing a lot of aperol spritz spritzes with uh prosecco um Uh and 
club soda and and Aperol. I, I like I find that an orange. I find that a very very refreshing. Summer sure. Drink. Mm-hmm. I will try a Manhattan anywhere. Mm-hmm. As will I. I think that's one of the best ways to present a bourbon. Ah, okay. How do you like your Manhattan? Do you like it perfect? Do you like it regular? Do you like it sweet? I have a sweet tooth, so I like it sweet. Mm-hmm. I like it up, and I like it sweet. Mm-hmm. And you prefer bourbon to rye in your Manhattan? Yes, I do. Okay. All right. I'm a rye to my Manhattan, and I like it perfect because I like both the dry and the sweet vermouth. Mm. And I change it to a cherry bitters instead of orange. Ah, very interesting. The other drink that I find is when you find somebody who can make this drink, and I'm a terrible bartender. I really am. I don't know what my problem is, but <laughs> I love to cook and I'm a good cook, but I'm just not a good bartender. I don't know what it is. It's like I can't bake. I can't bake either. You got to get a jigger. <laughs> I have a measuring cup. <laughs> uh, but when you find somebody who can make a Sazerac that's perfect, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. you know, like a true Sazerac, just the right amount of absinthe, mm-hmm. that's a religious experience for me. Yep, yep. Just perfect. I like that drink. I like my Sazerac with just a bit more than the wash. I like to know the absinthe is in there, not just that it has been there. That's exactly how I view it. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. I don't want to just smell it. I want to taste it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, I don't want it to be like they left a quarter pour of it in here. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a fine line. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. That skill is really a skill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what do I think? I like Old Forester. I think it's a solid drinking bourbon. Yeah. I'll drink that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there are so many expressions in the market now. Yeah. Of Old Forester. Of Old Forester, yeah. Yeah. I will drink whatever the highest proof one they have because I think it's <laughs> better when it's higher proof. And that's, I think that's just like, I think we know why that is, but yeah. Right. Sure. (laughs) Sure. You're a proof jockey. We get it. (laughs) I am. You know, I try everything and, you know, having just different things to try all the time is really what I live for. I love it. Mm -hmm. It's, It's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Well, awesome. So. Well, Joe, we want to thank you so much. Yes. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for your work. You are filling, I hesitate to call it a niche, but you're beautifully filling out a sector of the market that at least when you started doing it, no one was doing it and you're doing it beautifully. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. We love what we do and thank you for all your time here. I hope hope it didn't go on long too long here, but. Oh, no. No, no. This was good. (laughs) Anyway, Joe, thank you so much. These were delicious and I'm very excited to taste more of your expressions. And I think the rest of you will be excited to hear what Chef Louise has coming up with the dovetail. Can't wait. So thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll catch up with you again. Very good. Thank you so much. Till next time. Bye-bye. Bye. World of Wheezy is up next. Stay with us. Hey. Do you like whiskey, food, and adventure? I do. Hi, I'm Carrie. I'm Philip. I'm Louise. I'm the chef. Chef Louise Leonard, as in our World of Wheezy segment host here on the podcast, and Whiskey, A Chef's Journey. That chef. That's right. The project that started this very podcast. The series stars our very own chef, Louise Leonard, winner of Emmy-winning The Taste on ABC. And explores and connects the worlds of whiskey and food, city by city, country by country. Would you like to see this spirited culinary adventure on a TV near you? Well, you can by helping us finish the pilot episode through our crowdfunding campaign. For more information, including behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and incentives. And to make a pledge, visit our website, whiskeyachefsjourney.com. Now. Well, I think it's a cheers to that. (laughs) Let's. Cheers. Cheers. Hey, Louise, thanks for joining us. We are here today to talk about barrel craft spirits. And I think my favorite, because it's most intriguing, was the dovetail expression. How about you? I loved it. I loved it. And the minute I tasted it, I knew exactly what I was going to make, which is always a good sign. Yes, it is. I love that it's got like a, a rum barrel finish. and Yeah, finished in rum, port, and cabernet barrels. I mean, that was so intriguing to me. And it immediately made me think that I needed to get Frenchy with it. Um, I (laughs) trained at the French Culinary Institute in New York City. And so a lot of the French classics have my heart. And when it comes to, when I I taste a spirit that I feel like is deserving of a dish that's going to be a lot of work, it really excites me. So for Mm -hmm. this one, I thought a great pairing would be to make duck l'orange. It's an old-fashioned dish, but a delicious one. 
So I really, really, really think the gaminess of the duck works exceptionally well with any type of fruit or honey, any little bit of sweetness um, with some red wine. You know, that's kind of taking all those elements of the barrels that this whiskey is finished in. And um, upon making it, I would probably do a little bit of a variation of the classic, which, you know, is kind of how I put my spin on things from time to time. Um, Of course. Throw a little bit of the bourbon in with cooking the dish. Um, And I think I would also, you know, it normally just has oranges and it has a little bit of, of sometimes some sweetness added to it, depending on how sweet your oranges are. Uh, It has red wine vinegar. I would throw a little bit of rose water in there for a little je ne sais quoi and probably some fresh honeycomb as well. So I I think that would be a really sick pairing. You know, every time we talk, I just keep being in awe of all the different things you come up with. And I just get so hungry after I talk to you every time. I mean, it's basically all my mind thinks about morning, noon, and night. It is, I I could be out for a run when I should be really like solving greater problems. And all I'm thinking about is like what I'm going to cook next. So. Oh, wow. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we can't wait to see what we have next week for you and what wonderful pairing ideas you'll have for that. Sounds great. I look forward to speaking to you. For show notes on today's podcast, please visit our website at spiritsofwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E. We'll include links and supporting documents from today's Whiskey Chronicles, as well as tasting notes and recommendations from today's World of Wheezy. As always, you'll see upcoming topics, a guest roster, and links to past shows. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, Salon. You can become a sustaining supporter of Spirits of Whiskey by making a monthly donation. Just visit the Spirits of Whiskey page at anchor.fm. That's anchor.fm forward slash spirits dash of dash whiskey and click on the support button. And if you really like us, give us a five star rating and a review. Thank you. Spirits of Whiskey is produced by First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available via Anchor, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are heard.